0: Hello and welcome to the Geeky Medics podcast. My name is Josh Chambers and this podcast selfishly gives me an excellent excuse to interview interesting doctors and healthcare professionals from a range of different backgrounds. All really in a pursuit to try and work out what I want to do as a specialty but hopefully to help you along the way. Um, This week is when all the fifth year medical students suddenly become FY1 doctors and good luck to you all, it's a super scary time but hopefully a really fulfilling and enjoyable time. I had an excellent FY1 year. Um, This episode however we're we're joined by a professor of cardiology speaking to us about the nitty gritty different subspecialties of cardiology and his career in academia, I hope you enjoy.
1: So I'm Martin Cowey, I'm professor of cardiology at the Brompton Hospital in central London, which is part of Guy's and St. Thomas's, And I am a professor at King's College London, I'm visiting Professor Imperial, where I was a professor for 20 years or so, until the Brompton merged with Guy's. So um, I also am very interested in digital technologies. So I chair the European Society of Cardiology Digital Health Committee and have done for the past four years, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that as well. I was also previously a non-executive director of NICE, which is the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, which is the gateway for new drugs and technologies to be available on the NHS, and that's a very exciting organisation. And in my day job, of course, I look after patients with heart failure, which is a particular form of heart problems. And do clinics and look after inpatients, um, so lots of interesting things to do.
0: Professor Carey, thank you for joining us on the Geeky Medics podcast. Um, so, I suppose with all those sort of different facets to your career, what what does an average week look like for you?
1: <laughs> Good question. No such thing as an average week. It's very variable. Although the fixed points, though, are my NHS clinic, uh, one afternoon. Um, and a private clinic i also do on a monday morning so those are the fixed points and the rest of course is trying to fit into a working week uh, all the different things that one could do so many opportunities mm-hmm. so one has to choose um, but it's usually a combination of research project supervision uh, steering committees of big global trials um, but also i'm speaking at various meetings or mm-hmm. doing podcasts like this
0: yeah Brilliant. Um, so I think we'll, we'll start off going back to the beginning of your career. Um, what? Why Why did you choose medicine? Where did you go to, to medical school?
1: Interesting. When I was at school, I um, had been in hospitals because my mother was actually quite unwell and then died whilst I was a medical student. So I was actually in hospitals and I thought it was really fascinating, these people sweeping around in white coats, this, smell of detal or whatever it was and looking at their kind of curriculum up on the notice boards. And I thought, oh, that looks very interesting. And then you would see these students occasionally trailing around after the consultant <laughs> looking terrified. And I thought, that looks an exciting world. But my careers advisor at school said, oh, no, 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 Medicine's far too ambitious. Um, how about trying something else? What about pharmacy? And I'm not doing down pharmacy because pharmacists have a really interesting role and it's increasing. But I thought to myself, and I've thought of this many times over my career. Well, you listen to people's advice, you triangulate it, and sometimes you just don't agree with it. So I applied for <laughs> medical school and I got yeah. in on clearing actually uh, from fifth year. I was in the Scottish system and um, never looked back really, really enjoyed it from
0: day one. And then I suppose from there, where did your interest in cardiology sort of come from? Was that a, a, an undergraduate sort of point?
1: Yeah, I was always interested in the heart side of things. And initially, I thought I was wanted to be a heart surgeon. And then I met a few of them and thought, no, maybe not. Um, <laughs> now he says, they are, I'm very skilled. But then I thought cardiology, actually, the physician side of things was mm-hmm. probably a better match to my interests. And what interests me, and actually, I just came across a, a, an essay I wrote in 1983. This is when the dot matrix printer was around, and you had to cut out pictures from a photocopier and stick them together. <laughs> you know, this is a kind of, you know, makes it sound like 1830, but it was not. <laughs> um, I was interested in And I was also interested in heart failure right from the get go, because I thought the heart's a really interesting organ. It's essential for life. Uh, Complex and the body responds to it in an interesting way and we can image it, so we get pictures, we've got electrical activities, the whole electrical side, and then every organ's dependent on it. And there weren't many therapies for heart failure back in the 1980s when I was a medical student, so I could see it was very serious and medicine had a lot of things to advance. Um, And that's what drove me into cardiology. So I really thought it was interesting and vital and so many different aspects to it, which we can discuss in terms of subspecialties within it, but really important. And I really enjoyed it from the get-go.
0: Not unsurprisingly, um, the white coats and dot matrix was a little bit before my time, but uh, <laughs> both both of which, both, kind of which are no longer, <laughs> both of which are no longer in hospitals, although right. I, I did see the odd fax machine, but they are uh, they're slowly being uh, <laughs> they're slowly being uh, taken out. Um, where where did you go to medical school? I went to medical school in
1: Aberdeen which is the most northerly medical school in the UK. Mm. And it was a great place to study medicine in those days because there was only a hundred medical students in a year and an enormous hospital with thousands of patients. So you always had no shortage of patients to interview, to terrify you, to bamboozle you. Um, and lots of clinics. So it was a great place to, to do undergraduate medicine. Mm-hmm. And then after I did my house jobs in Aberdeen uh, as well, the professor that was there said to me, you must go to London. In those days you had to do what was called the golden circuit jobs. So that was mm-hmm. either London or Oxford or Cambridge, if you wanted to get on in hospital specialties. So I came down to London, interviewed. I was the only person that didn't have a received pronunciation. <laughs> um, in, the, in terms yeah. of the way i spoke um was lucky enough to get a job um, at the brompton initially um for six months then at hammersmith and then i realized that it was a great place to learn very complex yeah. medicine um, and i did my rest of my uh, training in london various places you know the middlesex hospital now demolished and now candy brothers luxury apartments in mortimer street UCL Now, no longer a hospital. It's been rebuilt since then. God, I am sounding very old, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and then I also worked at the Whittington, which is a very busy district general in North London. and really saw a massive amount of medicine. These were in the days mm-hmm. where we worked 100, 108 hours a week as part yeah. of our contract. Um, so there was a lot of exposure, very tiring, but a lot of experience. And um, if one could get through the exhaustion, it was fun.
0: So was, was the 100 hour week part of your contract? You had to yes. work? Yeah you, had to, you were on call for over you know x amount of days or whatever.:
1: Yes, in yeah. fact, my busiest job was cardiac surgery as a house officer. you wouldn't get that nowadays because you know you have to be a bit more experienced. So I was contracted mm-hmm. to do 108 hours a week. So in effect, you ended up doing every day and every second night. Um, on the ward and it was very busy. And looking back, of course, that would never be alive now. It's just too exhausting, too much time, etc. not enough supervision. So I think training is now much, much safer. And um, it has to be though, done in a tense way because you know 108 hours of experience is a lot of experience um so we saw a lot learned a lot but um i'm pleased now that of course it's not quite so draining for people and people can get a slightly better work-life balance whilst they're training
0: yeah 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 um so you've decided that cardiology perhaps was the was the career for you particular interest in heart failure as well um what was what was the training like and 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 what's it, i suppose what's it like being a cardiologist um do you enjoy the the day to day sort of pathologies of of you know of being a cardiologist in the day to day job <laughs>
1: Yes, I really enjoy cardiology, and of course, cardiology is such a broad specialty. So, some cardiologists spend all of their time in the cath lab doing intervention or electrophysiological procedures like ablation. Other cardiologists at the other end of the spectrum are very much more interested in prevention. So, they're talking to patients about lifestyle, making sure blood pressure is picked up and controlled, uh, cholesterol, et cetera. So, there's a huge span within that. As a heart failure cardiologist, it's um, uh, more holistic because we tend to look after people with multiple morbidities, so renal problems, lung Mm -hmm. problems, heart problems, all sorts of things. And our average patient, It's in the 60s or 70s so very interesting people often with quite severe symptoms struggle to get a diagnosis so it's really nice to be able to give them a diagnosis explain what the plan might be make sure they understand what's happening and that's a real privilege so i was just thinking in clinic last week when i saw an elderly patient with the family and you know within half an hour you've got to grips with all the issues you've explained it to them you know it's it's interesting mm-hmm. in medicine mm-hmm. and then putting together all your expertise mm-hmm with that kind of human factors, then you look at the echocardiogram, you see how the heart pumps, how the valves are working, you look at the blood tests, you look at the ECG, put it all together, you think about all of the options that are for treatment, you can decide how to sequence them, et cetera. So never-endingly and different for each patient, but very exciting. And I have to say, it's very multi-professional now, mm-hmm. which it wasn't when I started training. So Heart failure Nurse Specialist was with me. We often use a specialist pharmacist. Um, so it's it's part of a heart team now rather than mm. just a cardiologist on their own trying to do all of these things. So very interesting specialty, not without its challenges, but I enjoy it every day.
0: And proper proper meaty medicine. You know, it's yes. like you say that's if you're interested in, you know, being a, a physician and with proper meaty medical stuff. Yeah. Um yeah. Um so we sort of alluded to this and you've sort of talked a bit about it already, but there's obviously and I suppose this is in different in some respects to other specialties, but there, there's there are defined subspecialties in cardiology, like you were saying, interventional cardiologists and things. I, you know, it would be worth just going through those different ones, um, and we've talked about them already. But each has their pros and cons. If you're a you know practical-minded person, then you know being like you say, being in the cat lab would be better for you. Um, but sort of how did those sp- specialties come about?
1: I suppose in a way, and of course, uh, as you say, uh, more and more have become identified over time. So heart failure, for example, wasn't a recognized subspecialization until about mm-hmm. 10 years ago, when with more patients with it, it was realized you had to be more holistic and know a lot more general medicine, etc, that it was a subspecialization. Some of the other things are very technically driven. So for example, if you're an interventional cardiologist, you want somebody who's got lots of experience, does lots of angioplasty and stenting. If it's an electrophysiologist, yes, they need to diagnose what the problem might be. But they have to be very, very good at instrumenting and and putting multiple catheters into the heart doing complex interpretation of electrics and then finding exactly the right spot to kind of microwave, to use a colloquial term, the bit that's causing the problems. Those are very different skills from seeing a patient in clinic with Mm -hmm. complex multimorbidity. Also imaging, so cardiac MRI, echocardiography are subspecialties within cardiology. So you would train both in clinical cardiology plus imaging adult congenital heart disease. Thankfully, uh, many more children live to adulthood now Mm. with quite serious congenital abnormalities. And that's a kind of subspecialty of its own, um, which is very important. Um, So there's a whole range of different things. And most people training now in cardiology will choose one of these subspecialties. They'll do some general training first and then subspecialize. And quite often even after they've got their ccst or cct they will go off somewhere else in the world and do a whole year of immersion in a very deep way of their subspecialty and then come back and apply for a consultant's job but i think your listeners will realize of course that being a cardiologist in a district general hospital um, is quite different from being super specialized in a teaching hospital where all you do is that say ablation. So there's a whole range of different things, but all related to the heart side of mm-hmm.
0: things. And um, you're, you're a heart, heart failure specialist. And how you mentioned when, you know, initially when you thought about heart failure as a, as a medical student, as a house officer, there wasn't really much treatments. How has the how has the sort of landscape of, of treatment we offer in heart failure changed over, over your career?
1: It's a very good question and actually very optimistic. So I, I came, as I said, across this essay I'd written in 1980s about heart failure as a medical student. And it really was only diuretics and digoxin at that point. Mm. And the prognosis was poor. And there's lots of theories about what should work and shouldn't work. And it wasn't really a way forward, so very limited. So it was very sad then to diagnose heart failure in a patient coming in through the emergency room because you really knew that there wasn't very much you would do and they would probably die within a few months or a year or two. Mm -hmm. Now we have a huge range of different drug therapies. And we talk about four foundational classes of drugs like beta blockers, RAS inhibitors, Aldostean antagonists, and then the new class SGLT2 inhibitors. So super exciting. We now try and fire all of them in as quickly as possible. And in addition to that, we have lots of interventions such as cardiac resynchronization pacemakers, defibrillators, et cetera, all the way up to artificial heart pumps, Uh, and other uh, therapies. So there's a whole suite of different things we can Mm. now do. And average life expectancy from heart failure has gone up five, six, seven years. And I have patients in my clinic with quite bad heart failure initially, who I'm still looking after eight or 10 years after the diagnosis. Now, Mm. they're not running the marathon, but they're still here and with reasonable quality of life. So in my professional lifetime, that's been a transformation in the outcome for patients. It's really pleasing.
0: And I think it's interesting what you say about the SGLT2, not to get into detail um, about them, but um, I think there's lots of different specialties, particularly in, particularly renal and, and cardiology, that are talking about these as being sort of the next drug that we're, we're using. And we're already using it for you know, lots of different things. Yes. Um, yeah, but I mean, I'd just maybe to talk a, li- a little bit about that. I mean, what what is so special about the SGLT2s and, and what they do in heart failure?
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting journey actually and kind of just generally about drug development. You know, a class of drugs that was developed that could slightly tighten up the control of type 2 diabetes, a whole mm. range of drugs. You know, and they've got a modest effect there and that was fine. But then they noticed in their big diabetes trials, which were all set up actually by the regulator, the FDA, to reassure them that these drugs were safe from the cardiac point of view. But not only were they safe, they noticed this enormously strong signal for heart failure, And that surprised them. And all the cardiologists were saying, well, it's a diabetes drug. I doubt it's anything very important. So they set up the heart failure trials and actually showed massive impact on mortality and heart failure hospitalizations. That was confirmed by several trials and is now class 1A in the guidelines. So that's transformational. But they also noticed that kidney functions seem to be stabilized by these. So they set up big randomized trials for chronic kidney disease and they've just read out. And they also confirmed not only does it slow the progression of kidney disease across a broad spectrum of patients it actually reduces mortality so people live longer so these drugs you know have been around the gps for ages for type 2 diabetes thought of well yeah. probably okay now they're absolutely foundational for both heart failure and chronic kidney disease so you ask yourself the question why didn't we think about that earlier on so we could have had them a few years earlier and mm-hmm. I know it's been critical about success, but actually it just shows you that now with patients with multi-morbidity that some of these new therapeutics actually are likely to have multiple effects and we need to identify it quickly, demonstrate mm-hmm. it in big trials and then get them to patients. And that's when the benefit comes in. So that's a really good success story of th- one thing being developed for one thing, but actually found to be yeah. even better for other things. It's great news.
0: And that leads us on to uh, another area of your career, which is which is um, you know academia and sort of research. How how do, you know to someone particularly at med school, I think it sort of seems like this whole another world that you just have no idea about. But obviously, is so important to advancing what we do in patient care. How did you get into research?
1: Well, I always thought, even from the get-go, that <clears throat> it wasn't just about learning what we do now. It's about creating future practice. You know, let's mm-hmm. create the future together. So I was always interested in that side. But, you know, like you've just said, at the time I thought, well, I'm not sure this is for me. And, you know, it all sounds a bit boffin and maybe I just want to be a really good doctor. But I then did a Bmed Biol, so an intercalated BSC type thing and enjoyed it. And I did physiology and and epidemiology, which is an unusual combination. Everybody said, oh no, you can't do that. I said, well, that's what I'd like to do. So Mm. just make it happen. And then as I trained as a cardiologist, I also did a master's at the London School of Hygiene in epidemiology and statistics, because I was always interested in numbers. And that was really good because it kind of gave me the discipline about understanding data and trials, et cetera. And then I did my MD, a higher degree in heart failure epidemiology, actually, in West London, in Hillingdon. And I actually described for the first time who's developing heart failure, how well do they do, what's the characteristics, et cetera, and what's driving that. So uh, that was very interesting. And just as part of that, you know, just to show you that it's not always planned in a very careful way, it's easier to reconstruct it looking back and say, this is my story. But moving forward, it's much more difficult. When I was doing that study, I thought, you know, it's quite difficult to diagnose heart failure. So a real faff. You've got to see the patient, do echoes, do blood tests, and then you've got to debate, is it heart failure, is it not? And I'd noticed in the literature there was this new blood test called natriuretic peptide, but it was only very small studies and there's lots of people saying, and lots of things all the time. I said, why don't we use this opportunity? Here are brand new patients from primary care, GP and I'm not sure it's heart failure. Let's just study this peptide. And that was then published in The Lancet in 1997, the world's first GP-based study of natural peptides, which now are absolutely she's, central to the diagnosis yeah, yeah, of heart constantly,
0: failure. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but that took 25 years to get there. But it's those kind of things that's in my career, at least, where it's just curiosity saying, what about this? Could we do this? And at the moment, actually, my fellows are looking at digital literacy in the heart failure population, because, you know, it's super exciting. You get a new app, you get a new digital tool or wearable, but quite often people forget that it's not just about designing it in your bedroom and creating something new and shiny. It's got to resonate with the people that are going to use it. Mm. It has to be feasible for them. And then you have to interpret the data and how can we make sure that they're used for optimal purposes, that you make better decisions and better outcome. So very basic questions, but just challenging the way we think now, thinking about the future. If there's something missing, we need to fill in that gap. So it's like building a a jigsaw and seeing here's a gap that's going to that area. And most research now is collaboration between lots of different teams working together. So endlessly Mm -hmm. fascinating. But to your viewers, I think try it, see it, see if you like it. Uh, Remember that, you know, Um, this research is such a broad field all the way from test tube uh, in the lab all the way out to public health uh, and technology so uh, it's just asking the question is the way we're doing it now the best way and what might it look if it were better and i think that's a key part of any medical career Mm
0: -hmm. so you work within the as you as you mentioned the digital health committee and the european society of cardiology Uh, and you've obviously talked a bit about it there um so what specifically are you looking into i mean is it just applications with with patients with heart failure or or is it about how they you know interact with you as you know i suppose things i can think of that we're sort of looking into now as like telemedicine and teleclinics and things like that but what sort of things are you looking into as part of that committee
1: well, I've had a long-standing interest in remote monitoring, even before it was called digital health, and even before we had apps or smartphones. The so kind of concept that actually it would be more useful to know what's happening in the person in their normal environment, you know, mm-hmm. between times, rather than just relying on seeing them every three months and just taking two minutes to assess them and making a decision for the next three months, which seems a little counterintuitive, a bit medieval, really, in yeah, approach. Yeah, yeah. But the difficulty with heart failure is demonstrating what you should measure, how often you should measure, and how you make sense of it. So lots of clever engineers. And if you've got a pacemaker uh, in you, you can actually get about 14 different physiological bits of information, you know, how much water is in your lung, how active you are, how many episodes of atrial fibrillation you have, how fast your heart rate goes, how rate ability, endless things. Mm. But you've got to make sense of that. So you've got all these data streams and that's where now machine learning can help us, but machine learning wasn't really used in those days because we didn't have processing power to do it. But all this kind of journey of what information is important? How can we collect it? How can we make sense of this? And how can we make better decisions with better outcome or experience of care? And to be honest, COVID has really accelerated the field because now nobody argues that you shouldn't be able to offer something remotely, whether it's a remote consultation on a, on a just a smartphone or whether it's remote monitoring when you actually collect information remotely. So that's really helped make it more acceptable to patients and families but also for healthcare providers, doctors, heart team, et cetera. The big question though in heart failure is um, what works and when, it's not one size fits all. What technology should be used when, and when should you back off? And how do you actually manage the workflow of data? It's like a tsunami of information. You have to make sense of it and then make sure that you actually make better decisions. Just very quickly, I did one trial, where well, we did change healthcare for our patients. We increased hospitalisation by 80%. And the problem was, it was an alarm in a pacemaker. Patient got up in the morning said, oh, I feel okay today, I think. Let's have breakfast, read the newspaper. And then at 11 in the morning, the alarm went off. It was preset to go off at 11 o'clock in the morning if it crossed a certain threshold. Patient then has an alarm going off within them. They get very panicky, start hyperventilating, feel lightheaded and unwell. They phone their family at work saying, my alarm's gone off i feel terrible now family say oh my god we better come and see you everybody's hyperventilating they all turn up in the emergency <laughs> yeah. room they see a doctor that's never seen them before don't really understand the technology and the patient's staring at them go my alarm's gone off doctor i've got heart failure but the doctor says well everything seems fine to me but let's be on the safe side let's just admit you to make sure so these admissions were short nobody died it was unnecessary. All triggered by the fact that we thought if you just have one thing that crosses a threshold we should call an alarm it should be audible that doesn't work that's a disaster so we've learned from that that there has to be several parameters going in the wrong direction at the same time don't call it an alarm don't make it an audible alarm and just manage that workflow and the human factors otherwise you can drive things in the wrong direction so learned a lot over the years but that's what research is about it's like what do we do now this might be an improvement but let's prove it and if we don't succeed with this let's do something different
0: i suppose it's the the unintended consequences there that you you perhaps haven't even thought about Mm. until until we have 100 patients coming to uh, (laughs) coming to the on the medical take um so, I suppose uh, with within your research, uh, you also work uh, as a physician scientist with Ast- AstraZeneca. Yeah. So, how 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 does that work? I mean, do you, are you working in drug development? Are you sort of in an advisory role to them?
1: So, um, for the last eighteen months or so, I've advised them as a chief physician scientist for heart failure. So, this is in research and development where we have new molecular. Uh, assets or new drugs and that can be a small molecule it can be a large protein it can be interfering rna nowadays as well Mm. and we have to develop these so we have to establish the safety get the right dose and then take it into outcome studies to prove the added value and make sure the evidence we generate convinces the clinical community but also regulators like the fda in the united states or ema in europe mhra in the uk and then ultimately reimbursement we want nice for example in England to say yes clinically effective and cost effective the NHS should fund this in other countries a different system so it's that whole runway of developing something new in the hangar releasing at the start of the runway running it down making sure it takes off at the end so that's a whole drug development process which um I've enjoyed and and actually I'm going to be moving to AstraZeneca as their vice president for clinical cardiovascular at the end of the summer so I will be taking on that in a much bigger way. Yeah. Um, yeah wow. So we can develop new solutions for heart failure and demonstrate the value really quickly and make sure they get to patients. Or if something doesn't work, we prove it doesn't work and we stop development. That's the exciting journey. And that's in mm-hmm. partnership with patients and cardiologists, regulators and reimbursement.
0: Yeah, yeah. And with with your work at NICE, because that's a really interesting concept about how a drug is cost-effective uh, and and getting that approval through Nice, um. So you you sat on committees with them previously, and that is is that in a similar role, just discussing and weighing up the pros and cons of certain pathways and things like that
1: yes i worked with nice it was set up on april fool's day 1999 so it's been around for a long time actually one of the world's first formal health technology assessment bodies and i'd worked on their guideline committees i'd worked on some of the technology assessments and also i'd worked on it from the other side helping companies make sure their arguments were all lined up properly and they could show their data to to good effect and then i became a non-executive director so i then sat on the board which is more about the strategic direction and making sure that we were actually modernizing so we could assess not just drugs, but devices, diagnostics, digital technologies, and also make sure that nice um, decision support wasn't just big paper documents, who reads them nowadays that had to be embedded in electronic medical records or apps to make it easier mm. for jobbing doctors to know that a key decision was there and this was the choice they had and this is the evidence. So very interesting process. And that whole assessment of technologies is really interesting. What's the evidence that's needed by different stakeholders? You know, the clinical community has one list of things they want to see. Regulators are obsessed with safety, but also they want to see some effect. What? How do you measure that? How long do you have to go how many patients how big is the effect and then reimbursement. say well that's fine you've got some effect but the price of this is too high we don't think it's value for money and how do you do that fairly across everything in medicine that's what nice was all about Mm. and i think it's nice because i've seen it from all the different perspectives yeah yeah, i think it's really important that if we are developing something we need to prove that it's added value and we need to prove that it's worth it. So that's that kind of yin and yang between all of the different stakeholders and a fascinating process, which mm. we need to get better at to speed things up. So it doesn't take 17 years on average yeah, from yeah. finding a new molecule to actually having a drug widely available. We need to make yeah. it much faster and more efficient.
0: That's that's where um, reflecting on on the pandemic is is probably helpful in that respect, how we can speed things up in a safe way. Um, well, I know. Look at the
1: development of the vaccination. We're all so grateful for that. And of course, AstraZeneca was involved yeah. in that in terms of developing that vaccine and selling it at cost to many countries. Yeah. And, you know, if we didn't have a life science industry, we would still have COVID without the protection of vaccination. So mm. I think it's changed the conversation that we all understand now what's the healthcare challenge and what can we as clever humans working in our different bodies do? to tackle those healthcare problems and there are so many to tackle so yeah. there's no shortage of challenges for, for you and your listeners for the future you can create a better future more efficient way of finding these things you know so that you can all live longer and and healthier lives than mm. than my yeah. generation
0: it's, in- it's interesting that your intercollect degree was both in physiology and epidemiology and that's sort of that is your career now, in in sort of two, you know, as heart failure yeah. and 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 now I saw, sort of, no, I, I did see your TED talk on on uh, YouTube about sort of health promotion and the obesity epidemic, and so to what extent is that that a part of your career now? I mean, it's I, I always I find it you know incredibly difficult approaching these subjects with patients because there's this huge stigma associated with it, and i worked in bariatric surgery last year. Yes. And things. Yeah. But how, how do you approach that with, with your patients and I suppose on a, on a wider scale as well as, you know, with a population of people? Yeah,
1: so I would never see just myself as a sole person in that discussion. You've got the GP, you've got the patient with their history of interaction with healthcare. But you're right; a lot of them feel quite defensive about that uh, if it's tackled too head on. Mm-hmm. And then within my team, of course, I've nurse specialists. We've also got dietitians etc. But I think when I see a patient and they come in, and I say, "Well, yes, you are breathless," and yes this is the term heart failure, it sounds very scary, it just means your heart's not pumping as well as it used to. Now, the important thing is thinking, what can we do to make sure that you do well from now on? And there's several things we need to discuss. I then normalize it, so it's one of a list of things that we need to think about longer Mm -hmm. term. And I, I often say to them now, it's not about crash diets, it's about gently, over the coming years, you being a bit more active, and also making sure that you don't compensate by eating more because we need your weight to gently float downwards as we go on and we need support for this. I, my experience is as long as you don't come across as judgmental mm. or oversimplifying it, remembering that this person is where they are because of you know the things that they've done over many decades probably, you can't just transform that in a five minute consultation with somebody who's never yeah. met you before, it's just unrealistic. Yeah. But I think to your point behind it all also, we have to think about how as a society are we ending up in this position where there's childhood obesity is going up, particularly in the UK, and most people end up overweight. And I think a lot of it relates to the fact that food is readily available. It's very high in calories. Exercise is more difficult. COVID, everybody put on weight because it was actually quite difficult to do exercise. Mm -hmm. How do you build it into people so that they feel it's part of their normal activities? Um, that's something that I think we've failed at, and we've also failed over the years in nutritional advice. You know, back in the 70s, we said you mustn't have fat in your diet; must be low-fat diets, and then people switched to so much carbohydrate. Fat is actually a good appetite suppressant. If you switch to carbohydrate, it's not an appetite suppressant, so people end up eating more calories. So mm-hmm. I think we have to be slightly self-critical. That we don't always have the best advice, and it changes with time. We need to work together as a society on this, trying to get fitter and more active as we go along. And it's a multi-pronged thing uh, on that public health level.
0: No, uh, sort of. Uh, I don't want to take too much of your time. I've got maybe two quick-fire questions, um, uh, and that would be: what what, are the, what is the best bit of your job, and what is the worst bit of your job?
1: Well, the worst bit of my job is the fact that most jobs end up 90 95 tedium which is just general housekeeping doing the same thing making sure it's done to high standard it's not super exciting it doesn't really make you jump out of bed in the morning but it's got to be done i'm afraid that's part of life and it's in every profession what's good about it is the five percent of time when you think oh my god that is a new idea that is a really good thing we should really try and progress that and then occasionally coming across people who get it and say, yeah, let me help you make that happen. That's really inspirational. Uh, Even now after 30, 35 years of a career, just those moments keep you going, which is wonderful. The other thing that's really nice is to see young people coming through full of energy enthusiasm bright ideas and just with a little bit of guidance they really fire off in a really super productive way so following my fellows careers you know when they come and study their md or phd with me and watching their careers over the years afterwards to see how well they're doing seeing them on a platform presenting to an audience i think I remember them when they were young, you know, they've done really well. That is super exciting. I know it sounds trite, but actually it's, it's surprisingly motivational when you think that's great. You're passing on the torch to the next
0: generation. Yeah, yeah. Professor Cowie, it's been fascinating. Thank you for joining us on, on the Geeky Medics podcast. It's been brilliant having you on.
1: Pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks so much to Professor Cowie for taking the time out of his busy schedule to talk to us about his career. If you enjoyed what you listened to today and want to hear more from us, then please subscribe. Geeky Medics has loads more to offer and we've just released a collection of over 300 OSCE stations, providing everything you need to practice OSCEs, including patient scripts, examiner checklists and performance insights. You can learn more at geekymedics.com forward slash OSCE stations. As always, thank you to the producers of the podcast, Emma Harvey and Lewis Potter.